Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, I'm golden, thank you. Ha- did you uh, enjoy the big game? Um, I The the <laughs> game you're referring to would have been the Super Bowl, which was yes. uh, happening currently with our recording last week. Mm. Um, and I'll be perfectly honest, I bailed as soon as I saw the Han Solo trailer. Um, and uh, I mean I was very tired but also I feel a bit queasy about the NFL um, Mm. um, after its appalling uh, treatment of its players uh, this year most uh, notably Colin Kaepernick who uh, has you know had a pretty terrible time for essentially just doing a peaceful process which is you know not to bring politics into it you know it's just a bit shit isn't it Mm. and then obviously you have all the concussion stuff as well Yes, I mean, they're, they're not doing a great job of dealing with it. Um, mm. But, like, uh, I'm going to say that I was <laughs> politically uh, kind of opposed to it, having watched it every single year for, like, the last 15 years. But also, I was very tired. Um, okay. But, uh, but also tired of the NFL. Um, I haven't watched any NFL this year at all. I'm normally relatively interested in it. But um, the, the protests and reactions to protests this year... Um, has left a real sour taste because they just haven't dealt with it at all. Mm, yeah, and over here there's a lot of like all the stuff about you know standing for the na- you should stand for the national anthem and that I've driven pl- by places which like proudly proclaim like we will not screen NFL games here and it certainly has been interesting. I think with a lot of things in the last like since since the the election where. Uh, allegiances or people's attitudes towards certain things have shifted depending on which side you know basically which side trump takes mm-hmm. and so what you've you've seen like most recently like suddenly people who usually are very suspicious of the fbi as a uh like an institution that has a fairly long history of like targeting dissidents and minority groups suddenly being like Oh, t- turning and be- be defending them because the you know he's going after them. And with the NFL, it was very interesting that people who for years were just kind of like, well, you know, like all of this, you know, they're really mishandling the concussion stuff. They suppressed all this research for a really, really long time, and they're not really kind of taking seriously the toll this is happening on people's health. Suddenly being like, I get, I guess I have to support them now because this the, this protest against police violence has been kind of willfully misconstrued as some sort of protest against the flag and or the anthem or against the army and things like that. Mm. So it has been very interesting to see like everyone just being kind of like, I, I guess, I guess I have to take this position now, but I still don't like this organization for a lot of other reasons. Mm. But yeah. It's a shame because I, I do like a bit of pigskin. I do like a mm. bit of uh, a bit of gridiron. You know, I've always enjoyed it since being a youth, but yeah, not this year. Mm. I was I was happy to see Philadelphia win though. Well, Philadelphia is a great town, um, yeah. and uh, it's always sunny. is a great show, and <laughs> um, fuck the Patriots because they're twats. Mm. Yeah, I think there was certainly for me. It was less a case of uh, rooting for Philadelphia, although like you know, I, I know people at work are big uh, Eagles fans. So I was I was supportive on their behalf so much as rooting against Tom Brady. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, everything against Tom Brady. Like, he might be, like, one of the greatest quarterbacks the world has ever known, but, uh, you know, he's just a questionable 
<laughs> like questionable politics um, mm. and, and, uh, and approaches to diet based on his kind of like health books, which uh, I haven't read myself, but I've read kind of synopses of it. And a lot of them are like, yeah, this guy doesn't understand how science works. Mm. He's just t- saying a lot of b- bullshit, but you know, his longevity and success uh, give him that kind of veneer of expertise. Mm. He's the Gwyneth Paltrow of the NFL. <laughs> yeah. yeah he's slowly convincing people to shoot you know fucking turnips up their anus or something for some kind of weird health kick yeah so from that i guess <laughs> on to yeah that's a hard segue yeah let, let's uh let's go on to the somber news of the celebrity deaths this week there were there were a few in the just in the last couple of days earlier in the week obviously we lost john mahoney uh i think it's it's not uh uh, is not uh, kind of dissing him in any way or showing any disrespect to say that he was probably best known for for his work on Frasier because that was a huge show and he was a big part of it for 11 years. But, you know, he's also, you know, a kind of consummate character actor who was in a bunch of, you know, beloved movies over the years. I recently saw him in Moonstruck, which I'd never seen before, but he's he's really, really great. And that has a lovely kind of tentative romance with Olympia Dukakis in that movie. Uh... He was, I think, Oscar-nominated for his role in Barton Fink, playing uh, not William Faulkner, but essentially William Faulkner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, say anything, I think he's... he's is a, he a dad? He's in... the bastard dad who's embezzling the funds from the, the care home in... Uh, yes, in that's right. Thing, yeah, yeah uh, he's, he's, he's great in that. Um, yeah, just like a wonderful, a wonderful presence, one of those kind of character actors who uh, obviously got a... A, a kind of a, a long-standing gig on a sitcom which set him up for, for life but you know whenever he showed up in something it was always such a delight to see him and he always projected such you know humanity uh, mm. in everything he did yeah and he, he he pulled off the very difficult task in that show which was to keep it grounded whilst also mm. allowing us to believe how improbable it was that those two sons <laughs> came from him um mm. but it was he did a great job he was also great in things like eight men out yeah and he was, you know, he's just one of those, when you portray a dad that everyone watching wishes you were there, you know, that they were your dad. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was, that's a, a special quality. Um, and he had a real warmth about him. And, um, yeah, he wasn't actually that old, I don't think. Was he only 70, 77. Really? Yeah. But, yeah, it was kind of a surprise. I mean, I've not seen him in anything for a while, but, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't really know too much about what was going on. No. Uh, although I, I was always delighted to... Uh, be reminded because obviously he played like gruff american guys for a really long time and i think he he came up in like chicago theater so obviously he had that aspect to him but i was always uh, delighted to see that he was actually from blackpool yeah okay because there's an, isn't uh, there an episode of fraser where he is doing a mancunian accent with mm. uh with jane leaves i seem to remember yes yeah he's he's making he's making fun of her he's kind of like impersonating her and it's a kind of a spot on impression of yeah someone clearly he's doing a voice of someone from his family there and it's like oh yeah this is not just a case of someone being like oh i'm hanging out with a mancunian all the time so i can do their accent it's like yeah no this is this is actually what i would talk like if i hadn't spent 40 something years of my life living in the states mm. i mean is, is it weird i always thought this was strange with frazier that they went 
So obviously they went to a, uh, a length of sorts to get Jane Leaves to speak with a Mancunian accent. They could have had a, any kind of British accent, but Mancunian mm. is what they went for. And then when they introduce her family, who are like her brothers <laughs> and stuff, and they go to the trouble of hiring Brian Cox, who's Scottish, Anthony LaPaglia, who is Australian, and <laughs> uh, who's the other brother? Um, oh, it's Robbie Coltrane. Oh, yeah. Robbie Coltrane. Um, <laughs> as, as not Mancunians. And... Tough to pull off. Yeah, I I remember um, uh, Lapaglia being especially bad at it. Mm. Like like Cox and and Coltrane. It's like yeah, it's fine. I can see them kind of like pulling it off, even though they are they are not from Manchester. But Lapaglia is really just kind of like oh man, I would have hated to see all the people he beat out because they must have been really really bad. Mm, yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's like a dearth of like Mancunian act- actors around that time. They could have got David Thewlis mm. in, but around that time it would have been slightly more intense screen presence than a sitcom uh, that's essentially a, 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 like an English farce um, mm. would have demanded. Yeah, and also uh, we lost just yesterday, there were a, couple, a pair of kind of uh, gut punches one of, which, uh, of deaths. One was uh, Johan Johansson, the composer who um, was really you know, very young, only 48, and, and was kind of really starting to... Uh, kind of hit his stride as a creative force. Uh, he did the score for Arrival, which is one of the best scores of any movie of the last kind of like few years that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was just kind of like an all around kind of brilliant, brilliant artist. And then we also lost uh, Reggie Caffey, uh, probably certainly from our perspective as as people who talk about The Wire a lot. Someone who you know we we loved from that show, but again was. You know, just one of those, like like John Mahoney, a character actor who just showed up in everything. And every time he did, you thought, okay, this whatever's going to happen elsewhere in this movie, you've picked someone incredibly solid to be in this scene. So you're doing something right. Mm, yeah, and he was uh, in Game of House of Cards, I think, um, mm-hmm. more, more recently. And yeah, uh, he was the the dad in the reboot of the Fantastic Four. Um, yeah, which... which was what was put in the. Uh, the, the headlines for a few sites about his death and you think you know dig a little bit deeper than saying mm. fantastic four actor dies yeah but um yeah amazing voice great mm-hmm. presence and from all accounts or david simon talking about him an absolute stand-up guy uh johansson uh i only know arrival that's the only film i've seen but that is that has a very striking score and mm. Yeah, he seemed to be really on the upward curve. Yes, and he certainly seemed... Because, like, you and I, I think, talked... I don't know if we talked on this show, if we just talked offline about that video, the Every Frame of Painting thing about the Marvel Symphonic Universe, mm-hmm. which talked all about the fact that a lot of film scores nowadays get a bit samey and they all kind of operate in a very similar tonal palette. And Johansson was one of those guys that you could point to as like, oh, no, he's really pushing back against this. Like, he's trying very hard to make everything he does sound distinctive and unique and that sounds like it fits the tone of this movie and couldn't be just dropped in to another movie or just that someone could impersonate it and have the same impact. Everything he did felt that that it it suited the the work that was being done. Mm. Uh, And there's only a handful of composers you could could say that to, and, and he really did seem like the sort of person that you think, okay, I'm looking forward to the next 20, 30 years of his career, like all the scores that we'll get from him. And uh, obviously we're not going to get those now, which is a a terrible, terrible shame. Mm, Yeah, there's something especially tragic about someone with so much left to do. Um, Mm. 
And, you know, when they've kind of left you with such a little, you get the idea that, yeah, they could have been really great. You got quite a lot of acclaim and recognition um, at an early age for, when I say early age, early age for a composer, definitely kind of in the 40s. And, yeah, mm. they, 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 they did have um, distance left to run, um, yeah. which is, you know, a, a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier, of course, the Han Solo trailer, which debuted part, well, the teaser debuted during the Super Bowl and then we got an actual proper trailer the following day. And uh, I think certainly the fact that we have joked so much about whether or not the Solo movie actually exists, we we should probably talk about the fact that we have actually seen, that we now have seen footage of it. What did you think of what little we were shown of the Solo movie? I was very surprised on two counts. One was that the, in the first teaser, the film seemed to be visually very bold. Mm, um, there yes. seemed to be a lot of kind of very kind of moody, atmospheric shots that perhaps we weren't quite used to that we've seen in the Star Wars. Some very kind of like artfully created. The one that kind of pops up to me is the kind of Star Destroyer coming through the the, the kind of the clouds um, mm. and dispatching all the Tie Fighters. That that looked kind of pretty cool. Um, it looked very kind of dour in tone. It wasn't quite the light jaunty caper that I expected uh, and then after the second trailer the full kind of trailer dropped I was um, very surprised at how little of Alden Ehrenreich is in it in terms mm. of actually talking and being Han Solo which for a film um, about Han Solo called Solo we didn't really have any of his performance left as an imprint on us which is a, they might be kind of like holding back a little uh, to kind of keep the mystery going, but also lends some kind of credence that one of the principal problems with it is his performance. Mm. Uh, in the couple of lines of dialogue he has, he manages to convey less charm and kind of cocksure swagger than uh, Donald Glover does as Lando, who doesn't say anything. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Uh, also, I haven't seen the movie, so I've got no fucking clue. This <laughs> is pure <laughs> speculation. But uh, it certainly doesn't look like a stinker. Um, mm. And someone raised the point on Twitter um, in the week, I can't remember who it was, but they said, the film is obviously going to be good because Disney are behind it and they do not plough all this money and all this effort trying to salvage this if they didn't care deeply about it. Mm. Um, they obviously realised they had a problem and they have gone a very expensive, very labour-intensive route to trying to fix it, when it could have been the easiest thing in the world for them to do the opposite and and, and kind of write it off. Hmm. I'm, I think it looks cool. Uh, what did you think? Uh, I certainly thought it looked cool. I, I certainly thought visually it was not what I was expecting. Like you say, it was a lot bolder and more impressive uh the film is shot by bradford young who is a cinematographer worked a lot of ava duvernay shot arrival who which we were just talking about which is a, a kind of a visually very stunning movie and then stuff like a most violent year uh and um ain't them body saints so he's someone who is a very uh inventive cinematographer someone who's who can bring a lot of kind of great texture to it to a movie uh, and it's very exciting seeing what he can do with you know something so fantastical as Star Wars. Like, obviously, Arrival has science fiction elements, but for the most part, a lot of his stuff has been very much, you know, kind of earth, earth-based earth and very kind of, like, grounded in realism, even if it's poetic. So it's, it's fantastic getting to see him try something so kind of huge and mm-hmm. epic. Um, so that's very exciting. Certainly, yeah, I, I was surprised how little Han Solo there was, but 
thinking about it now and I just I just rewatched the trailer before we started recording to kind of refresh my memory it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't want to show too much Han Solo because obviously that character that cat character is so indelibly tied to Harrison Ford that it's a very difficult balancing act introducing the world to a new person playing it mm-hmm. and your options for doing that are either release like a whole chunk of the movie, like a whole scene so that you could say to people, Oh, this is what this new version of this character is like, you know, here's, here's kind of a, a chance for you to kind of settle in and see what he's doing or to offer just kind of like a few tantalizing glimpses. And I do think the bit at the end of the main trailer where he says, thought we were trouble there for a moment, but it's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, where he's kind of like, trying to put a brave face on what is clearly, uh, you know, very terrifying circumstances. Uh, that that works for me. I think there's something there. But, yeah, but it's one of those things where there is so little, little of it that you can read anything into it if you want to say that, oh, the, the performance must have been, like, really terrible and he was a poor choice, which I, I, I'm hoping isn't the case because I, did, I do really like him and I, I do think that he was an interesting and, and exciting choice based on the work he's done so far um, that I've seen and loved. But but it's totally possible to watch that trailer and walk away thinking, hmm, maybe they're leaning on all of these other more established uh, and, you know, actors who people already have some knowledge of and, and, and have a sense of their personal charisma uh, because this, the, the guy at the center of the movie is, is maybe not that strong. Mm. I'm kind of really looking forward to seeing Olin Ehrenreich play a different uh, Han Solo. If he mm-hmm. turned up and did the impersonation of Harrison Ford, we would be getting a very disingenuous performance because it would be, you know, Harrison Ford, when we meet him in A New Hope, that's how that's who he is at that point in his life mm-hmm. and his journey through the Star Wars galaxy or whatever. I want to see someone who perhaps is way less cocksure and, and, you know, way less assured of themselves because they don't really know what they're doing, which mm. which from the trailer, that could be the approach they've taken, which I hope there is. And I really just don't want someone impersonating Han Solo but looking younger because that's not what a character is. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and I do think it's interesting how much eff- emphasis they're putting on the broader team around him at this point. Mm. It does make me wonder if it has more of a rogue one sense to it where okay there's clearly the main character and and it's clear who that is but maybe the people around them are as much an important part of the story just because of what they reflect about who that character is and how they push them in in certain directions Mm -hmm. uh especially because apart from han and chewie and lando we don't know who any of those characters are so also in terms of Really, the fact that Amelia Clark and I think Woody Harrelson have more say more words in the trailer than he does is yeah is certainly an intriguing approach. Yeah, and it's like interesting. Like in the second trailer, I was like, oh shit, yeah, I forgot Thandi Newton was in this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, which is kind of crazy because I mean there was a lot of speculation that she was going to be playing Han Solo's possible wife in the comics. That he has a wife who fits uh, Thandi Newton's. Uh, physical description mm-hmm. but she's already been named in the uh, cast list and it's not her also interestingly about Thandie Newton I read her 
piece of our interview because I think after the trailer came out, there was a whole kind of like entertainment weekly kind of splash about the film and stuff. And she said that ninety percent of her performance was directed by Lord and Miller. So she's either not in the film very much, or she's not that important a character. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. all her stuff was kind of cleared before before they left, or it was just great. Yeah, that was the stuff they were like, okay, you got one bit of the movie right, guys. Now clear up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slinger, we'll keep the, the Newton stuff. Everything else, uh, everything else can be redone. Mm. Uh, and that was also, in, in the light of this, there was a redacting of the record or kind of a, a change of the story surrounding the firing of Lord and Miller. Uh, wasn't there from, from the, the, the official Star Wars camp. Yeah, they said that in, in, in the, I think it might have been the same source, the Entertainment Weekly thing, but before mm. they said, they kind of cited the classic creative differences. And even in Lord and Miller's statement, they said, we know it's a cliche, but genuinely it was creative differences. But now it's kind of leaning more towards what sounds kind of more likely, which was the um, Lucasfilm were well aware that these guys like to do improvisation and well aware that their methods were perhaps slightly different to those used on previous films where it's kind of very rigidly structured. They're kind of big special effects driven movies. They need to be done in a certain way, I guess, within a certain kind of rigid structure. Mm. Um, but Kennedy just keep, just kind of came out and said this week that it was pretty apparent that if they did continue down that way, they might have got a good movie, but they wouldn't have got it finished on time. Yeah. And, you know, there was it was just dragging behind and not going the way... When, and these things, these are huge um, kind of logistical beasts of their own kind of like industry that employs, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people all trying to work together on a kind of very tightly run ship. And whilst there is room to uh, explore things while you're doing it, um, big movies like this, it's tough to get away with that. And if they'd have fallen behind schedule, that would have been the death of them, I think. And from what they're saying, it's either a very diplomatic way of saying that, that, that they really did just kind of clash over creative differences or it could be that is genuinely true. And, you know, they were Lucasfilm were very worried about mm-hmm. getting, uh, getting the job actually done, which uh, would certainly explain their swift action. Yeah. And I... if you're worried about it being done, then Ron Howard's probably someone who will come in and do it. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, I always think whenever I think of the way in which big blockbusters are made, I remember a story around the production of Spider-Man 2, which famously, you know, there's that great sequence of Spider-Man and Doc Ock fighting on the train and how that sequence, they had the basic idea for that sequence in, like the first Spider-Man came out in 2002. And I think whilst it was still in theatres, they were already working on that train sequence because it was such an elaborate thing. And even though they didn't have an, a script, they didn't entirely know what was going to happen in Spider-Man 2. They still, they had to work on that train sequence for the entire time until it was about to come out because it was such an elaborate thing. And that is such, to me, that is such a great, also a metaphor for the way in which blockbuster filmmaking is, it, it happens. It's like, this thing is going to keep moving forward and it's going to arrive at a certain amount, a certain time and you've just got to hope that everything works and it comes together and there are there's room to kind of improvise around the margins but ultimately the thing itself is so huge and is moving so fast that there are great limits to what you can do and for filmmakers like lord and miller miller who you know maybe like to play around and to kind of take their time to get the funniest and the best take on something that environment probably wasn't you know conducive and in the wake of you know all the trouble making rogue one as well mm-hmm. 
there was probably just that sense that there was probably some jitters at, uh, at Lucas at Lucasfilm about yeah I mean we're, we're doing well so far but maybe we should try and make sure this one doesn't go off the rails as much as as the last one did mm, yeah absolutely but like ultimately it is an investment to be protected yeah um, and they acted pretty decisively when it could have been just as easy to let Lord and Miller finish and then take it out of their hands in the edit. They decided to reshoot from what Paul Bettany said, because uh, Paul Bettany is the replacement for Michael K. Williams. Yeah. Michael K. Williams wasn't um, wasn't uh, available, but Paul Bettany said in an interview a few months ago, actually, that like he thinks they reshot the vast majority of the movie, mm, yeah. um, which is encouraging, because if you're saying, go in there and fix it, and someone's saying, actually, if we're going to do that, I need to do a little bit more, and the people who are pulling the purse strings or on the purse strings say yes, then something's probably going right. Yeah, you don't want to be in a Suicide Squad situation where yeah. it's like, okay, here's a bunch of the material, we're just kind of try and make the best of it, and then maybe reshoot some stuff to make it funnier. Like, mm. you would rather that it was a kind of top-to-bottom restructuring and, and re-editing and reshooting than uh, run the risk of you get something that's just like a complete mess. Yeah, it's very easy to throw good money after bad, I would have thought, in a in a film like this. But mm. fair play, we'll see. It's out in, what, two months, is it? And then, then we'll all know. Yeah, three months, May, maybe? or May, yeah, yeah. I think so. Also, in terms of uh, LucasArts uh, or Lucasfilm, I, want to, I always want to say LucasArts because I played so many of their games <laughs> as a kid. So, mm. so for me, that has primacy uh, to Lucas. We get the uh, Grim, Grim Fandango expanded universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sam and Max, Day of the Tentacle. Yeah, yeah when are they going to get those movies made? Uh, that'd be great. Mm. I'm waiting. Uh, Monkey Island. Oh, yes, Pirates has probably put paid to a Monkey Island movie. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a real shame. Um, they they continued to protect their investment by hiring people who, you know, will get the internet excited. And they did that in a big way this week by announcing that David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the uh, executive producers of and kind of head writers of Game of Thrones, are being given their own Star Wars trilogy to work on. News that was met with a lot of device, divided uh, response online, as is often the case. Mm. There were some people who just had the completely you know, basic um, uh, take of it, which was like, oh my God, they're going to be swear words in dragons and tits. It's like, mm, no, like mm. th- they're writers. They can adjust to, to different, um, different modes. It wasn't like Benioff came from writing the 25th hour um, to Game of Thrones and was like, okay, but like everyone's going to talk in Brooklyn accents, you know, like they mm. do, they, they can shift, they can adjust to a different thing. But a lot of other people were, and I think this is kind of a, a greater, a more incisive thing to say about it, were saying, you know, well, Kathleen Kennedy says that they want to hire more women and people of colour to make the movies, and they gave the job to two white guys who were already very successful, <laughs> like, in terms of trying to open up the variety of voices that are being allowed to make these movies on this huge scale it is, you know, while you can see it making sense financially and from getting people's attention, uh, creatively, it seems like a very conservative choice. Mm, uh, I'm going to say two things about this. The first one is that Kathleen Kennedy actually did come out and say a couple of years ago that the, the productions are very big and mm-hmm. they love to have uh, female and people of colour directing Star Wars movies, but they're just waiting for someone with the right experience 
So they mm. have now turned over a new trilogy to two white dudes who have never produced a series of movies before, mm. which is true. Uh, but they said they're just producing and writing. So, right. you know, there's wiggle room, which leads to my second point, which is I saw a rumor flying around Twitter, which is always a great way to start a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it has been kind of backed up in a few other unrelated sources that the writers and directors of the either the two films following Ryan Johnson's trilogy or the three films um, in this new trilogy or the TV shows have already been hired. Right. And they are not announcing them because they have films for the Disney company that will, uh, will kind of encroach on their kind of marketing you don't want kind of they've got films coming out i mean what i'm trying to say is it's ryan coogler and ava duvernay right okay which is well that's people filling in the blanks and but they're the uh general consensus amongst these rumors is is that there's probably some truth in it that people have been attached and having said all the things that she was going to say it would make sense Mm. to pick kind of two steady hands to guide trilogies and then pick maybe slightly less well-tested people to work with in those kind of playgrounds, I guess. But, um, but also people who have very recently, uh, as in they are in the future going to be this, but are not currently this, are people who will have two huge hits under their belt working for Disney mm-hmm. as opposed to, yeah, you know, like... You could see them being given the jobs before making uh, A Wrinkle in Time and Black Panther, mm-hmm. but it's a much easier argument to make to the executives and the shareholders if those movies are made and they can point to them and say, yeah, like these people can handle this. Yeah, and it's uh, it kind of makes sense in the... Um, like Obviously, Ryan Coogler is doing press for Black Panther now because it's uh, mm. kind of starting to be released. If everyone was asking him questions about Star Wars, um, it would probably be quite irritating and kind of take the focus off what is a very important film. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, if you kind of do lend credence to that rumour and then you look at Benioff and Weiss being hired for the second trilogy, you'd probably say that Michelle McLaren was kind of a fix to do something in their trilogy. Mm. Um, That would be a fairly decent guess, but... I mean, I didn't think much of it when I saw the rumour, but then when I actually saw where the rumour came from, which was, like, screenwriters talking to each other and people saying they knew people who had been hired by Lucasfilm to do something who were not white men. Mm -hmm. And also the the fact that the TV shows are going to have to be announced soon if they're going to be ready to launch with the streaming service, that there, there will be people on board these jobs. They're not just going to hire them, like, next year and hope for the best. Mm. They're going to want these people on. And also, this is the other thing, they could easily hire writers and given how far away the movies are and given that Ryan Johnson said he got the trilogy without even pitching a story, there's so far to go with these films that it's very conceivable that they could hire someone who in six months' time drifts away from the project or the project doesn't Mm. happen. And given what's happened with half of the directors that have been hired and subsequently let go or have not worked out, um, it's probably best they keep their cards close to their chest. Yeah, and uh, also I think 
the Star Wars as a as a cultural product, as a brand, as a, this iconic thing, is also something that people are so invested in. Like obviously, we've talked about it now for like ten minutes or whatever on this, but outside, even outside of us, and we're not even that invested in it compared to some mm-hmm. more loud and virulent parts of the internet. Um, like the normal ways in which Hollywood works kind of become amplified. So like. You know, projects are announced all the time, which people are attached to, and then things don't work out. People change, like directors get shifted around, or projects just never come to fruition, and that's just kind of natural. But with the scrutiny that Star Wars gets, it's the sort of thing where, yeah, you probably do want to keep things kind of low key for as long as you can, and as little as as much as that is possible. With you know the most famous film series in the entire history of the medium, you probably do want to try and avoid getting too many firm details out there until things are like in motion so that there's less chance of people being like, oh my God, you know, such and such was signed, but they drifted away to work on another project, you know, is Star Wars in peril as opposed to being like, yeah, you know, movies are hard to make and sometimes things just don't work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely that it could well be it. But that, you know, they are savvy enough I mean, fucking hell, even I'm savvy enough to realise that you don't pan, you know, plan out like six films in advance, plus these spin-offs, and then be like, right, we'll announce them. They're like, oh, shit, who should we get to direct them? Who's available? Who's yeah. free? These these conversations have been happening for months, mm. and they will know who's doing what, and they'll know exactly what they want, um, but they're keeping the clo- cards close to the chest because they're piling up these movies. There's, there's like, I think they're going to have 18 months between solo and episode nine which will mm. feel like forever in star wars but we'll give them a bit of time to breathe and probably announce some stuff and not have you know star wars fatigue setting in yeah because like i think it was a couple of weeks ago maybe uh, it must have been back in december because uh, it was kind of like in that reflective period where people were posting on twitter about like the work they'd done in the year and i saw that pablo hidalgo who's the, the kind of like one of the big key creative people at lucas film and you know it's kind of a big part of maintaining the canon of what star wars is and everything like that he did say like oh it feels weird people ask me what was the best thing you worked on this year because no one's going to see it for like three years time Mm. Uh, and that is like the scale of what they're working on is that there are people busying away uh under the probably the most harsh ndas in (laughs) in existence working on stuff that people will not become public knowledge for a very very long time so this there there is a sense that this could be you know it may uh from the kind of an optics point of view announcing that two white guys have been input in charge of this this trilogy probably isn't that great but it may is also you know that there is a sense that maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot more stuff that we're going to find out eventually Mm, yeah yeah, but yeah, they they will have a roadmap. Mm. They'll all be there, um, and it's exciting to find out who's behind it. And I just hope it's a bunch of people I don't know who they are, and mm. I have to be like, oh, cool, oh, who's that? Because I think that would be exciting. Yeah, totally. And finally, for the news this week, and sorry for this being a particularly bumper one, but it seems like a lot happened this week. Um, mm. We want to talk about something that's been brewing for several weeks, but was finally confirmed in kind of like the last week, which is that we are getting a follow-up, not sequel, but a follow-up to uh, one of one of my favourite movies ever made, uh, Black Dynamite. 
Dynamite. <laughs> yeah, dynamite. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw it first of all pop up, and I was like, "Oh, that's a joke." And then I was like, yeah. "Obviously, because Black Dynamite's a joke." But it was confirmed that this week we'll be getting a follow-up, which will be set in kind of like it'll be like a kind of Western exploitation mm. movie. Yeah, and was it what, what? It's got a very funny name. What's it going to be called? Uh, Outlaw Johnny Black. Outlaw Johnny Black. Yes. Amazing. Um, but, um, yeah. but everyone seems to be back on board. Um, and that is... Black Dynamite is a film... I mean, let's be honest. Like, the black exploitation genre has been parodied quite a lot before, very successfully in uh, some places. But Black Dynamite does it with a, a kind of a joy de vivre mm-hmm. uh, that, that somehow is just so infectious and it's so funny and it's the uh, there's so much affection in there for the genre as well that it makes any kind of follow-up essential. Yes, and also the the film itself had kind of like a fun meta thing where I, I think uh, Michael J. White and others have talked about this, like the idea that he was not just playing the character of Black Dynamite, he was playing the actor who was playing Black Dynamite. So it would make sense um, that he would also have done like black exploitation westerns. So it's nice to see them operating within where you can essentially have the same character as Black Dynamite because it will be the same actor playing the same actor, uh, mm-hmm. but in a different genre. Uh, and also, yeah, it's like a more fertile ground doing black exploitation westerns because I don't think that is obviously less well known as a subgenre generally than black exploitation anyway. But yeah, but so there's just more. It's yeah, it seems like more ground for them to do something innovative and exciting and funny. And that you know that team did a great, you know, made a great movie with the original Black Dynamite and made a very funny follow-up cartoon series. So it's not like they've been letting their, they've not been going to seed comedically. They have been, you know, keep, keep uh, keeping uh, their reps in and everything. Yeah, and I don't know when it comes out or when it's ready or what the status is, but I'm there. I'm watching it. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the uh, the few things uh, that even the few like details we have now i'm just 110 percent in on this <laughs> because uh yeah that first movie is so great and as trepidatious as i may be about the idea of them returning to that world because it's going to be so hard to match the, the genius of what they did the first time around uh i'm happy i'm very happy to see them try mm, yeah yeah so uh, our subject this week uh again to go back to the subject of the super bowl Last Sunday, there was, you know, everyone was getting excited for the big game when, when Ava DuVernay, you know, sent out a tweet saying that, keep your eyes out, you know, during the game, something is going to happen that's going to blow film Twitter's mind. And everyone was like, oh, you know, we're going to get some sort of Black Panther teaser. That'd be, that'd be a weird thing. I mean, we've already seen a lot of the movie, you know, has she got a new project in, in the works? Uh, and then what it turned out was that Netflix, having acquired the third Cloverfield movie, which was something that we knew in advance, we knew that... Uh, it was going to be coming out at some point this year, were going to release it, you know, no build-up. It was just going to go out into the world, uh, the movie The Cloverfield Paradox. And mm-hmm. uh, everyone got very excited. This was a thing that, you know, variations on this idea had, had been done before, you know, day and date releasing and things like that. Movies obviously had debuted on Netflix before, but we never had something so high-profile drop without warning in that way. Uh, and so there was this idea of like oh man this is a real game changer uh and then everyone watched the movie and it didn't really turn out that way 
Mm. And this, this happened when... So we were just wrapping up the recommendations part of our episode last week. Mm-hmm. And having discussed Ava DuVernay's cryptic tweet beforehand, it suddenly dropped on Twitter and I saw it and I told you and I was like, oh, wow, that's something. And we were both pretty excited. Mm-hmm. The, the the release strategy, um, in terms of if you, th- if you think that during the Super Bowl is where the, the, the big studios, the big um, uh, kind of accepted hierarchy of, of this industry, um, they splash lots and lots of money on getting the best spots to promote their movies that are coming out in the summer, laying the groundwork, and that during this same time, via Twitter, they had announced that a film with a great cast, with an interesting behind-the-camera team, uh, part of a franchise that is, uh, if not always successful, um, at least intriguing. Mm. Um, and it was going to drop in T-minus two hours. And that was hugely exciting. Mm. So a bold, refreshing, exciting release strategy then gave way to a film with, which was not bold, exciting, or refreshing. Mm. Um, it was stale as you know just it was oh i mean it was bad Mm. don't get me wrong but it was like kind of offensively bad in the sense that it's such a waste of an opportunity a cast talent and uh, a setup then when we find out a week after the fact that it wasn't even a cloverfield movie Mm. until like halfway through production and then they just kind of tacked it on. And then you're like, that is some of the laziest fucking filmmaking I've seen. Well, the, the same thing happened with 10 Cloverfield Lane, though, to an extent, in that that was a movie that existed as a separate script. I think it was called The Bunker, I want to say, mm-hmm. back when Damien Chazelle was meant to be uh, directing it and ended up uh, with a screenplay credit for it. And then it got picked up by Bad Robot and they kind of retrofitted it to be a Cloverfield sequel. I don't know how much, I can't, I can't remember the exact chronology, but I think it was similarly kind of like late in the day in terms of production that they decided, oh, we're going to call this a Cloverfield movie now and kind of add some Cloverfieldian uh, elements to it. Mm-hmm. But there, the central conceit of the movie was strong enough uh, and the performances were good enough, and the writing and the directing, everything was there to kind of support it. And then it literally is the, the sort of thing where if you decided to just turn your TV off at the moment that, you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is about to get out of the bunker, it still functions entirely as a movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, the actual story of it is so fragmented and derivative of a lot of different things. But also the actual Cloverfield elements are so distractively, distractedly crammed in that mm-hmm. you can't really enjoy it as its own thing about, you know, a group of scientists on a space station doing some ill-defined experiments to try and create a kind of infinite energy source going to another dimension uh, and crazy shit happening to them. Because every so often, uh, you know, Gugu and Bataraw's husband is being shown... Uh, you know, trying to survive walking around Philadelphia, which is under attack by a Cloverfield monster. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is about 
10 Cloverfield Lane is that you can watch the entire film having not seen Cloverfield mm. and still not understand it's part of the Cloverfield universe. Yes. At the end, there's like spaceships flying around. You yeah. don't see the monster, do you? I don't think, I can't remember you seeing the monster. Um, there is, I think you do see, you see a creature, which mm-hmm. isn't exactly like the Cloverfield monster, but it kind of has similar aesthetic things. So you could watch right. it and just be like, oh, that's a creepy looking monster. But you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily have had to have seen the first Cloverfield movie to think, oh, right, this is, uh, at the very least, is in, in the same kind of um, visual realm. Mm. But with this, they have explicitly made it part of the Cloverfield mythos. And uh, reading about the production of the, of the film, the bits with uh, Gugu and Battle Raw's um, husband were all added completely afterwards. Um, yeah, and it none was of... very apparent that that was what yeah. happening. Yeah, it feels like such so jarring. And you're like, okay, right, okay, that's kind of strange. The funny thing that I found out about this is that um, David Oyelowo said that they found out that it was a Cloverfield movie during the Super Bowl. Oh, wow. There was a conference call that they were scheduled on to um, to say what happened to the movie, and that's when they found out the title, and that's when they found out what had been done with it. Yeah, because it was known as The God Particle for a long time, mm-hmm. and like it wasn't like a movie that was shot in sequence. Everyone knew that that cast was working on a movie called The God Particle, and then... I think I think it was at the very least it was rumored that it was a Cloverfield movie for a while because you and I definitely talked on this show about the fact that there was a, a new Cloverfield movie happening and mm. that it was in some way related to the God Particle. But I guess the, they didn't tell the cast that <laughs> it was just the cast needed to be uh, combing film Twitter for every morsel about their their movie. I guess, um, but but that the fact that it changed clearly at a very late date was also revealed on an exchange on Twitter this week between um, Scott Derrickson, the director of, amongst other things, uh, Doctor Strange, and uh, I think Robert Cargill, who also may have written Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. um, where uh, Scott Derrickson like retweeted an article from some movie website saying Scott Derrickson was at one point considered for, to direct... Cloverfield, and he said, "Not true. Don't even have to read it. This all article is complete bullshit." And then Robert Cargo kind of like said, uh, "Actually, we were, but it was called the God <laughs> Particle at that time." And then Scott Derrickson was like, "What? What the hell are you talking about?" And it was clear that this thing had not been, yeah, you know, had been in development for a long time as the God Particle, being completely separate from anything related to Cloverfield, and then just. Uh, bad robot must have decided to just kind of like either because they thought well no one's going to watch this thing if we just call it the god particle because it's not very good so we need Mm. to kind of graft it onto the cloverfield name onto it or they thought that was a good idea at one point and then yeah it it just ended up not being a good idea at all anyway to tar what had up to that point been a reasonably successful franchise with um this this kind of slapdash entry Mm, and it it really is slapdash. It the whole film plays like a sequence of scenes that were put there as a placeholder mm. whilst they were wait they waited to write something better. They were like you know uh, in the writers room and saying right okay what what are we gonna do for the next scene? Now imagine something like this but not this. We'll change this later. Mm-hmm. And they come up with a bit okay well um, you know Chris O'Dowd's arm comes off and it's kind of sentient. Um, and yeah, okay, but, and that's crazy, but we'll just put it there for now and move on and we'll come back and change it later. And they never changed it. Mm. And that's what it feels like. Every 
scientists uh, in an isolation cliche is is kind of touched upon. It hints towards things like the thing mm-hmm. and Event Horizon. Yeah, there's a lot and, of Event Horizon in it. Yeah, and Event Horizon isn't very good. Like, but like. <laughs> This film makes Event Horizon like fucking Solaris or something, <laughs> like in terms of like cerebral sci-fi. Um, but it's clearly reaching for something better. And mm. with the cast they got on board, which is pretty goddamn stellar. Oh yeah, um, yeah, they managed to fumble it. So uh, even the action is kind of fairly pedestrian, and and there's no real tension. And then the end, the the spoilers for everyone who hasn't seen it um you when the kind of the escape pod plummets to earth and then the clover giant cloverfield monster pops his head out of the clouds like what is our thought like mm. oh no for the people we didn't really give a shit about anyway and oh great nice one like what what was in t- what was the point of that and that whole sequence also is especially bad because it's juxtaposed against Gugu and Bataro's husband being like, tell them they can't come back. And these guys on the other end of the phone is like, well, they've already left. Mm. <laughs> the, you do not, your your wife is <laughs> part of a space mission. I'm pretty sure you, you would understand that once the capsule goes, this is not something you can turn around. Uh, mm. And it's just that, yeah, it's this really haphazard kind of slapdash attempt to inject a, 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 this sense of tension and dread into the final seconds of the movie, which just ends up being just kind of really laughable. And particularly when the monster crops up and you're like, oh, I can't believe they even did that. Um, mm. uh, and, and yeah, to, to, to go back to you, you talking about the writer's room, for me, it felt like the, the whole thing was constructed from a series of brainstorming sessions in which someone said, now there's no bad ideas, but then everyone else in the room didn't realize that that is always a lie. <laughs> that when you say that in a brainstorming session, that there are bad ideas and they just, every time they picked the worst one thinking, oh yeah, this will be good. Like, like you say, oh yeah, he loses his arm and then the arm scrawls a message on the ground and then they cut open the chest of the Swedish guy whose eye went all Marty Feldman at one point. Mm. And then they get out a big orb and then they attach the orb to their machine uh and it, it really is one of those things where you you watch just watch getting i just what what are the leaps that this movie is taking if it was just totally bonkers and and surreal and gonzo then like fine i could get on board with it but the characters are all so kind of like stuck and as good as the actors are in general and as much effort as they put in no one really feels like a lived-in real character in the same way that you know, all of the the characters in the first Cloverfield movie felt they felt like real people. They didn't necessarily feel that distinctive. They're all a kind of bit identical, but they all felt like distinctive people. And certainly, the second movie, like uh, yeah, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and John Goodman, were indelible, recognizable characters. And mm. th- that 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 was not the case in this one. You know, they were recognizable actors, but that was it. Mm. And. Uh- what annoys me is that Cloverfield's pretty good mm-hmm. as a movie. I mean, obviously it gets um, uh, dragged a little bit because it was uh, the, the kind of the hype and then the mystery box element. Mm. Um, but, you know, I as an experience, it's still a good movie. Yeah. Ten Cloverfield Lane uh, is, is a good movie. It's a decent movie. I enjoyed it. I felt like it was two movies stitched together that didn't quite work as a whole, but... Good movie. Both films, very tense, very exciting. Mm. This film, not tense, not exciting. Yeah. Um, it's, it's almost like they 
there, there was no real stylistic connection. There was no thematic connection that had the word Cloverfield in it. <laughs> and that was it. And when you do that, like, it's very difficult to carry over any good feeling or good vibes you might have from the other ones. You might, you might be like, oh, well, Cloverfield was good. 10 Cloverfield Lane was also good. They're not really connected, but by calling them the, by giving the Cloverfield stamp, I know they're at least going to be kind of like cryptic, interesting, tense movies. Whereas this was just, you know, I'm pretty sure um, that like kind of Doctor Who does, you know, that plot once a season. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I don't even yeah. want Doctor Who. It's like, you know what I mean? It's 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 the whole idea of how, you know, like someone appears all of a sudden and no one knows who they are, but they're like, oh, we're best friends from another dimension. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, I think for me, like the, the idea of them being unrelated movies, that's the thing I found quite exciting about when Cloverfield became a franchise, which, mm. uh, you know, it wasn't for eight years, for... You know, the first one came out and then there was talk like maybe we'll do a follow-up but nothing ever seemed to come of it. And so I think at some point everyone said, okay, that's a one-off movie and we're never going to see anything else about it. You know, you'll see a reference to Slusho or whatever in a J.J. Abrams project but that would be about as far as anything goes in terms of creating a broader universe. Uh, Mm. And then they did this thing where they said, hey, we have this unrelated but pretty cool and interesting sci-fi flick. Let's just say it's Cloverfield and kind of put it out there. Uh, and I, I always found that really fascinating as approach. It's a, a genuinely successful attempt at doing what John Carpenter wanted the Halloween franchise to be, where the first two movies of Halloween, it's like, okay, that's the stories of Mike Myers done. Third movie, Season of the Witch, is going to be an entirely separate thing. And then every subsequent year, we're going to have a Halloween movie and it's going to tell a different story. And then Season of the Witch was a massive flop. And then they did The Return of Mike Myers. And it's okay, this is what this story is now. It's always going to be about Mike Myers. Um and I like that idea, and that's the, the I like the just the ethos of someone at Bad Robot saying, "Okay, we're going to look for interesting sci-fi fl- uh, scripts, produce them, and then slap Cloverfield on it, just because it's more likely to get people to make them, and then you know you'll get more interesting movies made that way, maybe." But this this one, like the actual amount of Cloverfield stuff in it, is is a distraction. It detracts from the story that's being told, like that story. Better told, generally, would have been a lot stronger if it was just those people trapped on the spaceship, on the space station for the entirety of it, if you didn't get those glimpses down at Earth. Because every time it cuts back to Earth, you're cheapening the tension of what's happening on the, the, the satellite. Um, mm. But, uh, and you know, you can you can assume that people are freaking out because this space station has completely disappeared. You don't need to kind of, like, cut back to people and fill in unnecessary plot details doing that sort of stuff yeah I, I do feel like this was the one where the balance of cloverfield stuff to just what the movie would have been if they had never decided to call it cloverfield was really really out of whack mm. and it goes to show as well that you can't really change the course of a movie halfway through mm. to a different thing and have it be successful because the 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 joins start to show. Yeah, um, and I was talking about Star Wars earlier. Rogue One had you know reshoots and they changed the way they ended up at point B from point A, whereas this had a point A and a point B and took you into a set like the Greek alphabet um, <laughs> and expected you to hop back into the A to B journey. Mm. Um, and by the time you got back, there was no B. Uh, it was just a kind of like a smear. 
yeah. on the page, which and it's just you know, it was just so cheap. Uh, ultimately, it was a it was a it was a kind of like just a really lame cop out way to shoehorn something into the Cloverfield universe, which mm. isn't even a thing. But yeah, I just don't, I just don't know whether. We need more Cloverfield things. Um, Ten Cloverfield Lane, like, fine, I enjoyed that. But there was an idea, I think I remember when the first Cloverfield came out, someone said afterwards, one of the makers, it might have even been Abrams, he was like, other people were filming that night. You mm-hmm. see them. And there's a bit where they cross on the bridge and there's someone else filming it. And they were like, well, maybe we could just go to them for a movie. That's the idea for the sequel. And then that was always like, oh, well, maybe. And then you're like, well, it should be the same film. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's not really interesting. And they've just tried to try and kind of eke out some kind of Cloverfield business by just making completely separate films that aren't good enough to stand on their own. Mm. Although I think there is, like, they say that Cloverfield 4 exists already. And Great. that it may star Daisy Ridley. And now I wonder if it'll go through the opposite um, formula where in 10 months time, like a movie will come out and then in the like post game interviews, everyone will say, you know, this was originally a Cloverfield movie, but we cut it all out. <laughs> we just thought it would work better without, without any of that stuff attached to it. Um, yeah. It was originally a Cloverfield movie. But then we realized that they're terrible. So we <laughs> changed it. Or maybe like Star Wars episode nine is a Cloverfield movie. Mm. It's got Daisy Ridley in it and J.J. Abrams involved. We're going to sneak that out. Could be. It'll turn out Mission Impossible 6 is the first one that's actually proves the whole thing was a Cloverfield uh, mm. endeavor. Um, but yeah, I think that, that must get really fucking tiring when people in Hollywood like sell a script to Bad Robot and everyone suddenly starts putting, oh, it's not the new Cloverfield movie. It's like... No, no, it's not at all. And then, like, yeah, two years later, they are made a liar. But when they read the trades, it's like, oh shit, that thing I wrote ended up being a Cloverfield movie. <laughs> yeah, that um, that kind of like uh, on Golden Pond style, like <laughs> old person's drama about like, the Cloverfield nursing home. Yeah, uh, turned out to have a fucking giant monster in it. Yeah, my adaptation of a Confederacy of Dunces uh, mm. turned t- turned out that it was a monster all along. Who knew? Yeah. They've gone full Cloverfield. That'll be the new uh, <laughs> the new expression when a film does a U-turn and just decides to, instead of uh, reshooting and making itself stronger, just add a different film's elements into it. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. Yeah. The reason we're talking about this this week, like, if Cloverfield a Paradox had come out in theatres, I don't think we'd be talking about it because, like, oh, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> Let's move mm-hmm. on. But the way in which it's released and the fact that we have talked so much about distribution on this show in the past and Netflix in particular and, and their, the way in which they have disrupted, to use a horrible phrase that is used way too much, but I'll use it anyway, um, the film industry and the way movies are released, you know, that makes it interesting even though the way in which it actually played out, it wasn't that far away from the way in which like wide release movies started, which was basically... You know, in the old days of of film distribution, you would play films in like a handful of markets and they would get good word of mouth and you'd play them at different theatres and slowly expand. And then some kind of wag at one point just basically went, hey, if we open a movie in a thousand theatres all at once, then there's no time for bad word of mouth to get out so we can make all our money at once. Um, Mm. And ironically, that uh, bit of kind of 
um, hucksterism reshape the way in which all movies are um, perceived, particularly once someone did that with Jaws, a genuinely good movie, and just kind of like reshaped the entire way in which Hollywood works. Um, so it, so this, to me, is, is, is really weird, where on the one hand, you're saying this was a genuinely startling way to make a, to make a movie available for the public, to basically say, hey, no one's seen this movie at all, it's there on Netflix, making a big push for it, which is something Netflix don't usually do, and we'll get into that. Um, but at the same time, it was a movie that was terrible, and it was clear that what Paramount were doing here was not kind of taking a big, bold step into the future, but saying, this movie is going to fucking die in theatres. Let's just fucking dump it on Netflix. Yeah, it, it becomes very apparent now that the movie was dumped. Yes. And the reason, the principal reason for that being is that Netflix don't release their viewing figures. Mm. So if the Paradox Cloverfield had been released... In cinemas, they'd have had to spunk, you know, 60% of their budget on advertising. They've had to roll out this huge media campaign to try and get people to see it, as many people as they could in the first weekend, hopefully make their money back. It would have bombed. We would have seen it all in black and white that it made $10 million over the weekend and disappeared without a trace. Whilst you dump it on Netflix and no one knows how it did Mm. at all. We know that people watched it and we know that people didn't like it but we don't really know how it did. We will never know how it performed. And they apparently paid $60 million for the Mm. privilege, which is no small amount of change and was more than that movie ever would have made at the box office. Yeah, so Paramount made out pretty well. That's the one thing we know about this whole situation is that Paramount made a much better deal doing this than if they had stuck to the plan of putting the movie out. Hmm. Yeah, and we're going to see quite a lot of this. We've got another movie coming this year um, called Extinction. Um, Annihilation. Was, oh, no, this, this is another one. Oh, a um, different one? Yeah. Why have they got basically the same name? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, a film called Extinction, which stars Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan. Oh. Um, and it was originally due to land in January, but they yeah. pulled it. Um, it's a sci-fi thriller and has gone straight to Netflix and that is probably, uh, either, either, they're either dubious about his chances or they have no confidence about his chances. This is also going to happen with the Disney streaming service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read a list of content that is expected to debut on Disney's streaming service when it starts. I think it starts uh, next year and the two big things were... Uh, movies, one of which starred Anna Kendrick and the other one, I think possibly Zac Efron. And they are mm. films that have been made, that are finished, they're being held over for it. And the reason wow. they're being held over for it is because they're probably not very good. Mm. So we are now going to see that happening a lot um, with, you know, films that could is, is like, it's, it's a less uh, offensive way of saying it's gone straight to video. Mm. But, you know, we need to kind of be aware that that's what's happening. Yeah. And then also with Annihilation, which I mentioned earlier, which is the Alex Garland movie, Mm -hmm. that seems to have been the opposite situation in that the movie has, you know, early word of mouth on it is excellent. People say that that movie is really, really great. But uh, whoever was originally going to put it out uh, theatrically, I think Universal maybe, they 
put it on Netflix seemingly because they don't think it's going to make money just because it's a weird sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like cerebral and very much in the vein of what Alex Garland does. But that what he does is not profitable. <laughs> so they've thought, okay, the best thing we can do is put it out on Netflix. But yeah, it, 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 it does seem to be a case of Netflix is going to become the dumping ground for product that, for whatever reason, studios think uh, is not going to be profitable for them, which is uh, certainly an interesting state of affairs. Yeah, and, and just kind of really bizarre to think that that's where the Netflix original content banner has ended up. Because when they started pushing out their own stuff, which was only sort of three or four years ago, considering that now they're at the stage where they're putting out stuff that costs, that they're, they're investing billions of dollars a year in original content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's strange that that seems to be where they've gone. They've gone from trying to play in the kind of the film world, in the TV world with like the, the all the big hitters, you know, trying to get stuff nominated for Emmys and what and, and everything like that, to basically making paying studios for stuff that they don't want, <laughs> and then putting it out themselves. Mm. It's just weird that. To use the director DVD analogy, where films that would go director DVD are films that could easily be scrubbed up a little bit with an exciting explosion, kind of uh, big writing on the cover, a recognisable face. You could probably make your money back on on mm. video, but like this is a movie with you know pretty rock solid cast and like people involved, and somehow it's kind of got the indignity of just being dumped whilst being sold as 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 Netflix users getting a huge bonus to their subscription by having this amazing film exclusively for them, whereas mm-hmm. it's a film that exclusively no one wanted. Yeah. I want to read a quote now from a, producer, a film producer called Keith Calder, who um, uh, posted this, this on, on Twitter. And I think, for me, this uh, is indicative of what I'm starting to think of as the Netflix paradox. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what he said. It's fascinating that when studios make a movie they think is terrible, they can just offload it to Netflix. When an indie producer makes a movie they think is great, they hope they can get Netflix interested in buying it. Really puts things into perspective. And that kind of chimes with something that I've been thinking about, the way in which Netflix works as well, which is that they theoretically have one of the biggest platforms in the world for original content. I mean, obviously, something like YouTube is bigger because it's free, but Mm. YouTube don't have... Like, they're not responsible for kind of, like, buying up and putting out all of that content themselves. Um, Netflix can get behind one of their own shows and theoretically push it out to tens of millions of people and get it a bigger audience than it could in theatres. But it's reached the stage now where when you hear that a movie has been picked up at Netflix from Netflix, um, like at a film festival or something, um, you know, this happened last year with Mudbound um, uh, when it played at Sundance, there was this sense of, oh, this is such a great movie, no one is going to watch it because it's going to be on Netflix. So you have this situation where something has a huge platform, but that sense that if you go onto it, you're just throwing stuff into a void and there's a infinitesimally small chance that it will be a next Stranger Things or whatever. But for the most part, like, this stuff is... It, it, it gets made. It's theoretically can be seen by tens of millions of people, but it just never happens. And it's a very it's a very weird thing that that is how that has, has shaken out. Mm. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird to think that there could be just like a very even mix of movies on Netflix which are mm. indie gems that no one wants to watch because they don't know what they are, the viewers don't know what they are, um, and uh, terrible films that are being dumped on Netflix that no one wants to watch because they're terrible, mm. um, whilst people pay their subscriptions to watch like House of Cards or Stranger Things. Or Frasier. Or which Frasier. Is, yeah. Which seems to be what most people watch on Netflix based on my uh, my Twitter feed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, lots of people re-exploring like friends as if like they've had no chance to watch it in the last 20 mm. years it's not continuously <laughs> played on television all day every day on like e4 or whatever it's just constantly on and everyone they, when friends dropped on netflix in the uk it was like last month everyone was like oh i'm gonna watch the whole thing from the start and i'm like what you've been doing <laughs> that like what come on it's not like some rare thing that's been out of print for like, a long time is it it's fucking friends Mm. It's it's one of the few uh, texts of modern British culture is literally everyone from who is currently say let's say twenty five onwards mm-hmm. can say oh it's like that episode of Friends where and within four words of describing the plot everyone will be like yes exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's so ubiquitous um, but but at the same time you know there was this great interview with Duncan Jones this week cuz his show, his film Mute which is kind of his his passion project that he's been trying to get made for like basically two decades at this point is one of the first scripts he ever wrote um it's this this kind of like ambitious um sci-fi film similar to like Blade Runner that he's been trying to trying to do for a really long time it finally happened because Netflix bought it and they produced it and it's coming out and he he kind of gave this interview in which he said and he was very candid and I, I really um, I found that really remarkable where he basically said look I know you know it's it's tough for me that this movie is never going to be seen in a cinema or if it is going to be seen in a cinema it's going to be seen by very few numbers of people like it'll be at like one off screenings it's not going to get a wide release but at the same time this film would not have got made if Netflix hadn't done it. And mm-hmm. there's that trade-off where you think, you know, stuff is getting made that wouldn't happen if Netflix didn't get involved. Like sometime this year or maybe next year, we're going to see the final finished version of The Other Side of the Wind, the unfinished Orson Welles movie that people have been trying to kind of couple together for mm-hmm. 40-something years at this point because Netflix have got behind it. And that's an amazing... A gift to give to the world of, of certainly the world of cinema that we'll finally be able to see some form of, of that movie that he never quite managed to put together and that is that is incredible but at the same time you're thinking well yeah but it's it's all of this stuff is not going to get pushed the way that it should netflix don't highlight their content in the way in a way that would be advantageous like mm-hmm. they will push their tv shows but they don't really do much to push their movies and they produce more movies and tv shows or it's pretty similar amount um it, it does really feel as if they just want to put out a lot of stuff they don't care about whether or not you watch it mm. um and even if good things get made that feels like it's doing a massive disservice to the thousands of people who helped get those things made that they're essentially making stuff that gets chucked into the great ever-expanding infinite bin that is netflix Mm. i I wonder if there's some kind of value for how much people watch on netflix in terms of hours Mm. so they'll push 
something like House of Cards, which someone could, if they watched it from start to finish, they're going to spend 40 hours yeah. watching Netflix, as opposed to watching The Cloverfield Paradox, which is 90 minutes. Mm, yeah. I wonder if there's some kind of, like, the the reason they push what certain things over other things is because the amount of times people stay on, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. And I guess it's easier to have that ongoing conversation about a TV show than movies because you never say to anyone, you never say to someone, oh, I, I, I started watching The Cloverfield Paradox. Well, no one will say that anyway. But <laughs> I started watching The Cloverfield Paradox last night. It's like, oh, you know, how far are you into it? Oh, about 20 minutes. Oh, I guess really good. You know, you're not, you're not watching a film like You watch films in a single sitting. Whereas for TV, you have that things, you know, there are people who sit down and watch the whole thing in a single day. There are people who parcel it out and kind of like fit it in around their lives. So the people who are watching it more slowly, you know, they'll go on Facebook or Twitter or they'll talk to their friends about it and say, oh, I watched episode three last night. It was amazing. And that sparks the conversation up again. Whereas it's harder to do that with movies because you watch it once and it's like, okay, I'll watch that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's there's limitations to how much... I don't know, virality there is to those sort of conversations online, which is a shame, but I think it is, it's just a, a sign of the ways in which film and TV culture are fundamentally different um, when it comes to something like a, a streaming service like Netflix. Mm, yeah. And there's that thing, isn't there, where you invest a lot the amount of times I've had the conversation with someone where they're like, oh, I've just finished Peaky Blinders. I need something to start now. Mm. You know, I need something new to start. And then you're like, full of recommend, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen this? You very regularly, very rarely get that with the film discussions on Netflix. It's yeah. always like, oh, this movie is on Netflix. You probably haven't noticed. Yeah. And also, it's more exciting to see a a real movie on Netflix. You know, one that has played in cinemas or played at festivals suddenly cro- crop up than it is something that's like a Netflix original. Because in most cases, a Netflix original has like cropped up with zero buzz maybe a recognizable name in the cast but that's pretty much it and like some i i honestly can't think other than bright because it starred will smith and it was kind of like it 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 kind of looked and felt like a real blockbuster something that could have been released in cinemas there there hasn't been one of their movies that has really kind of broken through in that way and there are some that could like mudbound it certainly has found support and an audience and obviously it's been nominated for Oscars and I, I would hope that that has driven more people to check it out because it is a, a really great movie. But like none of their movies have really kind of latched on like that and you do wonder how much time and effort they actually spend pushing for that sort of stuff and, and it certainly seems like the success of Bright will dissuade them from spending too much on like mid-budget movies that won't get made anywhere else to begin with, but also don't get watched that much on Netflix because Netflix don't push them. Mm. I wonder if they're continuing with movies just because their service is called Netflix. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of where they came from. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that would that it's that kind of lame commitment that explains something like the Cloverfield Paradox. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's technically a film. We'll stick it on. <laughs> yeah, that definitely goes on the box. Technically a film. Mm, yeah, it's it's a sequence of scenes that happens. Mm-hmm. Roughly 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, at, at least 70, or whatever the 
lower limit is of how long a movie has to be to qualify as a feature. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it technically qualifies as a feature. The Cloverfield <laughs> Paradox. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is really strange to think of where how much Netflix has changed since we've been doing this show. Because I remember when... Um, my parents first got a Netflix account when, you know, when I still lived in the UK and would come over and, and use it. They had like a, an, a, a genuinely amazing library of older movies. Um, mm. Like they weren't great for current movies because usually current movies would go to like HBO or stars or something first. But like, I remember when they first got an account <laughs> and this is, this is very typical of me when, um, they first had an account, an account. I think they maybe had like two things in their queue for streaming. It was probably like The West Wing and um, It's a Wonderful Life or something. And then by the time I'd finished my first visit, visit there were like 400 titles in there because I had literally just gone through and like picked, okay, yeah, want to watch that, want to watch that. Ooh, there's a Derek Jarman movie. And it really was. It was like a huge array of all these older movies. And now their list of like classic movies, over here at least, I think in the UK, the selection is a little better. It's like sixty movies made before nineteen ninety, and it's it's kind of paltry. Mm. And it, it, it and now you know the thing that they were sold on, which is that they had this really great library of older movies for streaming, has gone. And the, all these people who signed up for it for that reason are now just basically told, "Hey, watch all of these things that are kind of like real movies and real TV shows, but not." <laughs> Like, they they kind of have the look and the feel and the tone of TV shows, but you've never heard anyone talk about them ever because they just show up on Netflix unannounced. Mm, it's older kind of catalogue movies have kind of been supplanted by other services like mm. Mubi and Filmstruck and, and kind of people like that. And I do wonder whether there's going to be a streaming service which is essentially just all archive films. Just like classic movies, like the kind of TCM of yeah. uh, of streaming services. But yeah, I mean, it, it was something that when it started was kind of like good for television, all right for films if you didn't mind sifting through the uh, you know the chaff. Mm. Um, but it was mainly a television service, and now it feels like it's kind of competing with itself it doesn't really like, it's a lot of money to spend on a film that's not very good it's mm-hmm. a lot of money to spend like a lot of the netflix exclusive films you see are you know you know smaller indie films that um, sometimes even genre films that are, you know this is the only place you're going to see it unless you're happy to you know well there is no director dvd rental market anymore that's the only place you can see these films yeah. like you know where else would you go and see them they're not anywhere else unless they're like on youtube and someone's uploaded them or whatever or they're like being torrented or whatever but he's going to torrent the tiny films you never heard of so yeah. like there there is a huge amount of there's actually a pod, podcast which is involves uh, pablo hidalgo the uh, previously aforementioned lucasfilm employee called the depths of netflix oh. where they, they go in and they dig out the weirdest shit <laughs> on on netflix and there really is uh, there there is like i'm gonna get to this in my recommendations but on streaming services like Prime and Netflix, you, you just get the recommended films at the top and, like, you know, comedies. Or you previously watched It's Always in Sully in Philadelphia. Why not watch The Vicar of Dibley? They're kind of recommendations that don't work with the algorithms. And you, you are seeing, like, 4% of Netflix's total mm. things. But you're not going to find anything else unless you really, really, really delve deep 
into it. And what there is in there, there is some seriously, seriously obscure shit in there. Yeah. That is just clogging it up. And, you know, in the future, the Cloverfield Paradox will be amongst that shit that people <laughs> scroll, scroll through nine screens to see, oh, what, what's this movie? That sounds like something I might like. And then people bail on it after 10 minutes. It's shit. Mm. I think also just thinking about Netflix's evolution over time, I think one of the things that it benefited from, and I think the reason why it had to change is that when it started, it benefited from the fact that studios didn't realize there was money in streaming. Mm -hmm. So they could get that massive catalog of older movies because like all of these studios were like, yeah, sure. We didn't go (laughs) like Mm. physical media forever, you know? And then like the financial crash happened and people stopped buying DVDs and Blu-rays in significant numbers. And they just watched stuff on streaming all the time. And then like four or five years ago, um, you started to see Netflix's, um, uh, original, uh, library start to go down like hugely. Like, I think there was something like two years ago, people said there was something like 80% of their library would like expire at the end of a month because all of these contracts, were due to expire and like the studios were going to rinse Netflix for a lot of money to renegotiate. And they were like, no, we'll just, we've got our own original stuff. Now we're basically a network. We're just going to do that. Um, and so like there was, it's kind of just the fact that there was this weird blip in time where technology and the legal situation aligned for them to have like, to be this really enticing service for people who were like, oh man, look at this great array of like older movies that I can watch. I don't need to you know, kind of go and rent a movie or buy a DVD. I can just watch it right here. I can sit and watch, um, you know, some kind of obscure, semi-obscure Italian neorealist movie in the comfort of my own home. That's great. Um, and then at some point that window closed and they had to become this new thing. But the new thing that they are is just, just like, like you know, I just kind of say it's like a void. It's the thing where content enters and you say like you know the obscure stuff goes in and maybe you'll stumble across it but Mm. because of the algorithms and the layout and stuff unless you are willing to just kind of like sit there and scroll through menus for hours which is obviously the bane of you know the 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 cliche of uh the, the streaming age of just kind of like cycling through things until you find something you want to watch um yeah it's a lot of effort and you know there are there's only so many hours in a life um, to kind of like sit and do that sort of stuff, so you might as well just watch Fuller House. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, which or what, the Richie Rich thing. Yeah, which I think Fuller House secretly, according to people who know, uh, may be their biggest hit, which they don't want to admit. Mm, that's because interesting. because I've I heard on I started listening to a podcast. I'll mention another podcast called Black Men Don't Jump in Hollywood, which is a podcast about. Um, Movies, big Hollywood studio movies starring black actors and, and, you know, what those movies kind of do to advance kind of like the cause of representation in Hollywood. And it's a really good, really funny show. But yeah, they would, in the episode they did on um, Bright, they were talking about the fact that, you know, the, the guys involved in the show who were all actors and writers anyway, whenever they have meetings with people who work for Netflix, like they'll never admit how well their shows do, but they will say Fuller House does very good for us. And like <laughs> the fact that that's the one they all cite means that it's probably the one that gets the best, best views of everything, but they don't want to admit it because they want to be the network associated with kind of like stuff like House of Cards, which people actually, you know, give good reviews to. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be the, uh, 
uh, the stuff that no one expects to be good, the the people watching connects with for some reason. Um, mm. But I don't know anyone who's ever watched it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's certainly from an English perspective, it's like no one remembers what Full House was to begin with. So mm. the desire to sit and watch the twenty something years later reboot is not that high. Yeah, yeah, mm, absolutely. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and which we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Um, well, I mentioned very briefly there about going beneath the surface of streaming services and finding stuff that uh, you might not have realised was present. And I was scrolling through... Um, Amazon Prime or Prime Video as it's been rebranded recently um, and kind of got down to the comedy section and after you wade through like four or five screens of their original content, their Amazon mm. exclusives, their their Amazon pilot season, I realised there's an awful lot on there that has completely bypassed British television and I started watching one last week and I started watching the ABC show Blackish. Mm. which I'm not entirely sure aired at all in England um, and um, is seemingly all on Prime Video. And I started watching it, and that's a really funny TV show. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, to kind of um, uh, surmise it, it is a kind of single-camera sitcom um, that centres... It's kind of focused on a pretty well-to-do kind of middle-class black family headed by uh, Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross. Um, and they're four kids. I think they've got four kids. Um, and they live with their dad, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Mm-hmm. And it uh, kind of navigates the 21st century world of black and white relations in an incredibly funny way. Um, and I kind of thought, well... It's an ABC sitcom, you know, is it going to be fairly lightweight? And it's very enjoyable and accessible, but also uh, has some teeth to it, mm. I'd say. Um, one of my favourite jokes was in an episode where he's like, Anthony Anderson's son is a bit of a nerd and he's like uh, concerned that he's not blending in with like who he considers to be the kind of friends he should have. And uh, Tracy Ellis Ross, his wife Rainbow, who's kind of like a hippie, kind of slightly more relaxed attitude to things, suggests that you go to a uh, camp for uh, young black youths. Um, but Anthony Anderson notices that on the front of the brochure there is a picture of black kids gardening. And he says, black people don't <laughs> garden, uh, with the exception of the uh, non-consensual gardening we did for 400 years. <laughs> Which is a fucking brilliant joke. Um, but that, the whole thing is very sharply observed, uh, very, very well performed. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is, is someone I've liked for ages, but never really seen her in much. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and the, the kids, the least great in kids on television, um, <laughs> actually incredibly funny child performers um and yeah i think all of the seasons apart from the most recent one is up on prime video i'm about halfway through the first um and i'll be planning on because uh, it's a very very good show uh, and i would heartily recommend it yeah i've i've not watched as much blackish as i would like but i've seen what i've seen of it has been great and i also really enjoyed that during the early years of that show lawrence fishburne was on that and hannibal concurrently and <laughs> There is there is no greater uh, depi- uh, uh, showcase for that guy's range than for 
what he does on those two shows because they are very, very, very far apart tonally. I'm going to recommend, in the um, spirit of kind of like digging through the glut of content that exists out there, um, you know, this is, I think there's something like 500 new TV shows coming out this year. and wow. Or 500 shows in production. I don't know if they're all new. That would be quite insane. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so I'm going to highlight one that just started and it's a show called Counterpart on stars it airs on over in over here in the u.s and it stars uh, jk simmons and a, a lot of tv shows and movies make the 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 kind of good and correct choice of casting jk simmons because he's pretty much uniformly great in everything what counterpart presupposes is that all those shows are wrong because they didn't cast jk simmons twice <laughs> which is what this show is it's a sci-fi show in which uh, we are introduced to this this character played by J.K. Simmons, who is kind of a mid-level bureaucrat in some obscure government agency. He doesn't really have much going for him. Kind of a sad sack guy um, who just kind of like wanders around. Uh, I think Berlin, the show takes place in, and uh, you know certainly Eastern European lo- locale. And um, you know he's his wife was just re- played by Olivia Williams was just recently in a car accident, so she's in a coma in a hospital. So he's kind of living this kind of very sad, uh, not particularly exciting life. Uh, and then in the first episode, he is kind of taken to his side by his boss to this kind of dark room. Uh, a man in a hood is walked in and when the hood is taken off, it is also JK Simmons. And we find out that the agency that he works for monitors and regulates a rift in space time between two parallel universes where at some point kind of during the cold war, um, this rift was created between the two and the two worlds diverged in different ways and the plot at least in the early going there's only been three or four episodes aired so far is about the fact that someone from the other universe has hired assassins to kill people in kind of like quote-unquote our universe uh all of whom seem to have some connection to the jk simmons character and uh, it's a really fun exciting inventive science fiction show and uh, you know as as you could probably surmise from the way in which I framed it, the really exciting kind of marquee thing of it is getting to see J.K. Simmons, who has always been such a great actor, being given this unique and exciting challenge of playing against himself mm. and being able to embody the two very different sides of his persona, which is like the one half you have Juno's dad, you know, just kind of like nice everyman guy. The other half... Uh, whiplash you know mm. or, or oz you know the tough you know terrifying man and it's fun seeing him uh navigate the ways in which those two kinds of characters that he has kind of broadly played um are very very different from each other but also the points at which they also kind of connect and find common ground uh, and it's one of the most uh exciting new shows i've seen so far this year i mean it's only february but still um, I'm, I'm really excited to see where it goes and uh, don't let the fact that it's on stars and therefore is seen by very few people put you off. It is, it is very, very good. Mm. Let's sound, I, I kind of can't wait to trawl through a streaming service and find it <laughs> lurking somewhere at the bottom. In five years' time, mm. when everyone has forgotten about it or it's gone the homeland route and been on for so long that people forget that it's still on. Or it's part of the Cloverfield universe. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please 
Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Player Friends, Stitcher, all the usual places. Leave us a review. It helps us uh, grow our audience and recommend us to a friend. That helps as well. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>